Good morning. <laughs> it's good to see you guys this morning. Um, man, wasn't Greater Things just an amazing series? It was so it was so great. I loved preaching God's word to you through the Upper Room Discourse and thinking about what could be. Uh, as we go into the, the summer, we're starting a new series this morning where we're going to be trucking through the Sermon on the Mount. Um, Sermon on the Mount is, is Jesus's um, longest and most in, uninterrupted teaching in the scriptures. And, and in, so, in some ways, you could say this, that, you know, that every word is a red letter, not just your red letter Bible, right? I mean, they're all, they're all Jesus's words. But in, in another way, there are some very specific teachings of Jesus, and we find them encapsulated, really, in the Sermon on the Mount. And, um, and, and you know, the, the interesting thing is, is that Jesus is, is taking the Old Testament teachings that we could, we could say we're, are summed up in the Ten Commandments and the law. And what he's doing um, in, in the Sermon on the Mount is he is pressing them on the human heart. Uh, and he's not leaving any room for us to squirm away and see uh, what his call is for the church. And, 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 and one way you could say this, he's talking about the culture of the kingdom of God. He's talking about the culture of the kingdom of heaven. He's talking about what it looks like, feels like in action. Now, he's not taking away from any of the Old Testament teaching, but he's showing what these teachings look like when they're applied to our hearts, pressing them deeper. Why is it important for us to hear about Jesus and about the culture of the gospel in our church? It's because culture matters. It's the reason you go to Chick-fil-A. I'm pretty much being serious, right? Culture matters. Culture matters in a company. Culture matters in a family. Culture matters in a church. Because just because you have doctrinal purity does not mean that the, the doctrine feels the same in a community. Amen? It's true. I was, um, and when I say culture, here's what I'm meaning. I'm, I'm, I'm saying it like this. It refers to the attitudes and behaviors of the church, not just the doctrine of the church. I was listening to uh, Pastor Ray Ortland talk about this in 2015, and I'm going to quote him here on this. Um, he says this, faithfulness to the gospel requires more than doctrinal purity in our churches. Now, some of y'all are getting, the, the hair on your neck is raising up a little bit right now, okay? Um, because you're thinking, oh man, he's saying that doctrine doesn't matter. That's not what I'm saying. It also requires relational beauty in our churches. This is why we have Ephesians chapter one through three, doctrine, Ephesians four through six, practice. It always goes together uh, in, in, in the gospel. He says, it is possible to sincerely preach true doctrine while at the same time utterly denying those truths by living an anti-gospel culture. And then right after he preached this, and I want to give a caveat here, he showed this image that haunted me that some of you have seen before. I'm going to flash it up real quick just to exaggerate the point here. This is why culture matters. So what is this? If you're listening online, it's a photo of a bunch of Klansmen who are in a church for a meeting, and the banner behind it says, Jesus saves. We look at that, and we say, that's ridiculous. There's no way that that proclamation of Jesus saves and that demonstration of the Klansmen should go together. But somehow, this group in Oregon, some 100 years ago, got there. And they got there because the gap between what they were saying and what they were practicing were so far apart. And I'm, and I'm willing to bet that that compromise uh, didn't start at this moment, 
right? You can take that ugly photo down now. I, I, um, I share that with you to exaggerate the point, not to, I'm not, I'm not going off on a tangent, to say that culture matters. Uh, and it matters in this church, and I want to do with everything in my power with the Spirit's help to help protect the culture of the gospel in this church. I fully expect for sinners to come to faith in this church and for believers to grow in faith in this church. And it takes the culture of the kingdom of God for that to happen, friends. We, as a church, we have this vision, and it's this beautiful vision. And a vision for me is something that we're always going for, and we're taking a step toward it every single day, but we're never quite getting there fully because Jesus hasn't uh, ushered in and consummated his kingdom. Our vision is this, is to live as the family of God together. In other words, we want to prioritize uh, always being able to slow down because people are the thing that matter most. We're, if it doesn't involve people, if it doesn't, if relationships don't matter, um, then we would just keep blowing by people. But we want to slow down and prioritize people, and we want to and we and we want to proclaim. So there's the ministry of the word piece doctrine, and we want to demonstrate. And there's the ministry of the the deed piece, the gospel of grace. So the heart of Jesus to one another in this community and also to our city, to the watching world around us, to the community. Now, this vision requires that we keep a pulse, uh, not just on doctrine, but also on the culture of God's grace in our church. To ever increasingly mind the gap between what we say we believe, what we proclaim, and what we actually believe, what we actually live. Jesus was so concerned about culture that he gave us the Sermon on the Mount. And today what I want to do is I want to set up a baseline or a foundation to build off of uh, for this spring-summer series as we're going through the Sermon on the Mount. It's a foundation that we will need to remember each and every week as we learn from Jesus because you're going to be convicted by his words. The temptation is to minimize what he's saying and say, oh, he can't really mean that. No, he does mean that. He does mean that. And that's why when Jesus... Uh, when Jesus begins the Sermon on the Mount, he, he talks about this key theme. It's the baseline of everything, and it's this word repentance that I think the church has forgotten. So here's our big idea of where we're going today, and I'm going to dig straight into it. What is a kingdom culture? A kingdom culture is the proclamation and demonstration of the gospel in a community that begins with and continues in repentance but not just repentance, a repentance that leads to new obedience, okay? So that, that's, that's kind of the, the life cycle of the Christian. That is what we are about. And I think in, in order to see the, Jesus build this kingdom culture more deeply and more fully in our church, we need to keep two things in mind, and they're the two points for today. The two things that are crucial are this, is the expectancy of repentance in the church. We expect that we have to repent, that's what Jesus, this is what Jesus teaches in the Bible, that repentance is a part of the Christian DNA. And the second thing is this, the necessity of honesty. I think oftentimes we don't repent because we're not honest. There was this, uh, anyway, I'm not going to go off on that. It's not my notes. Um, let's dig in here. The expectancy of repentance. Um, if you've got a Bible, I'd love for you to turn to Matthew chapter 3. Uh, and we're going to look at Ma uh, a couple verses from Matthew chapter 3, verse 2, and then uh, from 4, 17 and following. So as you're turning there, I want to share a story with you. Uh, I was uh, recently uh, having lunch with a new friend. We had originally uh, set up a lunch meeting 
to actually help our kids work through a conflict that wasn't going so well. It was a lot of she said this, he said this, and lots of backbiting, and it was not good. Um, but the cool thing is, is that we set up a lunch together, got on the same page, and we were able to help our kids reconcile, which was really beautiful. Um, but the cool thing was, is after, after that happened, that lasted for about five minutes, then we had time to share our stories with one another. We didn't really know each other that well. And as my friend, my new friend began to share his story of how he had come to faith, uh, it, was, it was pretty shocking to me. Um, basically, his story uh, was that he had been in church his entire life. He was basically a professional musician in churches. He played music everywhere, lots of big churches, uh, made his living, a lot of his living doing that. Um, and, and one day, uh, about five years ago, six years ago, it hit him that repentance was never a part of his Christian journey. That somehow he had been so familiar with the teachings of Jesus, so familiar with the culture of the church that repentance wasn't a functional thing in his life. And he realized at that point that he was not a believer. That's what he told me. And I was kind of shocked at, 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 his, at, uh, um, at his admission of that. Um, sure, you know, sure, faith was part of his story, but he realized that he was spending his life trying to manage sin and most often being conquered by it. And what we say at this church often, Jesus has never called you to manage your sin. He's called you to lay it upon his shoulders to repent and turn from it. And, and it left my friend in this place where on one hand, he couldn't enjoy this freedom that he professed that he had in Christ because he was still holding on to sin. And on the other hand, he couldn't really enjoy his sinful living because he was trying to hold on to Christ. And he said this place that he was at was just this miserable place. And when you say, when I say enjoy sin, you know what I mean, right? Yeah, okay, y'all there? Good. Uh, I can really relate to what he shared with me. Uh, doctrinally set free, but uh, functionally still in bondage to sin, imprisoned by sin. Jesus gives us the solution that we're gonna lean into this morning, repentance. Repentance seems negative at first. I, I haven't met people that say, man, I just can't wait to get up and repent this morning, right? That's, that's not how we think about repentance. Until you realize that repentance is God's design, it's his plan, it's a command for you and I to be able to see, experience, and extend the kingdom of God to one another. And as we read this text, I want to ask yourself, I want you to ask yourself this question. Like if someone were to ask you, what does repentance mean to you? What would you say? Um, listen to what uh, Matthew chapter three says. This is John the baptizer. He, he wasn't a Southern Baptist, but many people think that. John the baptizer. Um, uh, he came as the, as the last Old Testament prophet um, before Jesus, and he came with this certain mission, this, this mission of preparing the way of Jesus, and the sign that accompanied preparing the way for Jesus was this baptism of repentance. So here's what, here's what uh, the scriptures say in uh, Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. And here's what he was preaching. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That, that, that's Matthew's phrase for the kingdom of God. It's the same thing. Uh, then going on from that, G, he, 
Matthew, I'm sorry, uh, John the baptizer passes the baton on to Jesus, his ministry after he's baptized. And Jesus picks up the same baton and he says this in Matthew 4, 17. And this is the key phrase. From that time, Jesus began to preach saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repentance is the foundation of experiencing the kingdom of heaven is what Jesus is saying. From that time means this, that we can bracket all of the teachings of Jesus from that time with the baseline or the foundation of the necessity of repentance. Repentance is the foundation that all of the teachings of Jesus are built on. In other words, we can't just take Jesus's healings and his miracles and and his kind things and his compassion and his mercy without repentance. Because without repentance, it's not Jesus. It's not the gospel. And so Jesus says, okay, if you're gonna understand my teaching, the kingdom of heaven, you have to understand that it's all based on repentance. You know, repentance has never been easy and it never will be, friends, because it requires that you and I drop our pride, our ability to cleanse our name and prove ourselves right. We have to die to self. That's the entrance to the kingdom of heaven. So painful. Now, not from this place of resignation uh, where we just kind of say, oh, well, I guess I'm just a sinner. I guess I'll just have to admit that and confess that to the Lord. But no, 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 from this place of joyful hope. If you want to experience anything of Jesus, Jesus says it starts here. Repentance as a way of life instead of a thing to be avoided unless you've done something really bad, right? And I think we see repentance as this dirty little word that we seek to avoid. I mean, that's the way my, my kids view it, you know? I gotta repent, Dad, I gotta ask for forgiveness. If I'm honest, that's the same way I view it too, right? It's the same way you view it. It's because we have this distorted view of who we are, who God is, and what it looks like to flourish in his kingdom. Now, because repentance is so difficult in so many ways, there are lots of forms of repentance. In other words, ways to enable us false forms of repentance, rather, ways to enable us to keep our flesh and our pride intact while still having our souls soothed in sin, right? There's lots of false forms. So I just want to, I want to draw back the curtain on a couple of those for us here. Instead of repentance, maybe we, maybe we feel regret and we wonder, that's got to be enough. I, I, re- I regret the decisions that I've made. So maybe you really blow it with a family member and you say something that you wish you wouldn't have said, or I I do that anyway, maybe you don't. Uh, And so you punish yourself by just being down in the dumps that night and maybe into the next morning. But the good thing is you don't see that person for another day or two, so the feeling goes away. And you, you feel bad about the consequences of your actions, and you think to yourself, surely that's enough to pay for the consequences of my sin. Anybody ever been there before? You don't have to raise your hand. Chris will, that's okay, thanks Chris. Or maybe on another another false form of repentance, standing on its own, could be apologizing. So let's say you hurt someone with your actions at work, or in the home, or in the classroom, and maybe you just added to the conversation that was already demeaning someone, it was already gossip, it was already going in a bad direction. You just kind of chimed in a little bit. You didn't even start it, right? I mean, you just kind of chimed in. You just agreed. 
And something that was triggered uh, in you, maybe it made you get explosively angry. You just, it just came out of left field for you. And you quickly respond with an apology. Oh, I'm so sorry I didn't mean to say that. And the truth is you did mean to say it. You just didn't mean to get caught saying it, right? And, and, and you, you, realize, um, you realize that it came out and you, you offer a quick apology. I'm sorry I didn't mean to say that. I'm, I'm sorry that I made you feel that way. Ooh, that's a good one, isn't it? That's a false form of repentance right there. My kids do this all the time, so do I. I'm sorry your feelings got hurt. I'm sorry that decision hurt you. Now, apologizing is a part of repentance, right? When we're reconciling with one another. But it is not all of what repentance is. The type of apology that repentance requires is personal ownership of sin and humility. That's the type of apology that leads to true godly repentance. Not this thing where you say, I'm sorry, you. No, it's, I'm sorry, I. It's always that way. Which makes us see that we deserve death because of sin. The repentant, adverse way to deal with sin is to put the ownership on someone or something else other than ourselves, which is not where sin squarely falls in the scriptures. It falls on us, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. What inside us is so averse to ownership of sin? What is it? It's pride, isn't it? There are a lot of behaviors in the church that are not repentance, that claim to be repentance. And we're probably all prone to one of them. What do they have in common though? What do all false forms of repentance have in common? They all lead us away from Jesus to deal with our sin instead of to Jesus to deal with our sin, all right? That's what all of the false forms of repentance have in common, is they are trying to handle and manage our sin in some way other than Jesus Christ and his cross. Repentance that leads to life always involves a couple things here. A change of mind and a change of behavior. Those are the two kind of things. that, that meta, Metanoia is the Greek word for repentance, and it literally means to change your mind. But Jesus talks also about changing your behavior, bear fruits in keeping with repentance, right? Actually, John the baptizer said that. But uh, So let's talk about changing our mind. In Acts chapter 19, uh, verse 4, Paul's preaching to the church in Ephesus, and he, he, he tells us something about the nature of repentance in the church. He says this, Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. So there had to be a change of mind about what we believe about God. And when we have a change of mind in what we believe about God, about Jesus, it forces us to change our mind about some other things too. Namely, ourself, because we see what God's word says about us, because we've changed our mind about who God is, and what we believe about sin. Repentance means our minds have to change. They have to change about who we are. And what, is, what do the scriptures say about who we are? That I'm not a good person. I don't just occasionally sin. I sin frequently, especially in my judgments about other people. I am in constant need of forgiveness and grace. But when I'm trusting Christ, I'm whole and I'm forgiven. That's a really hard thing to admit to. That is the baseline of what repentance is, to change your mind. We have to change our minds about what we believe about God. 
Nothing is hidden from God. When we sin and we hang on to sin and we refuse to repent, we are believing that something, either that God is not who he says he is or that he can't see everything we do. Those are the two things that are running through our mind. It has to be that way. My frame isn't hidden before God, as the scriptures say. He knows every intention of my heart. I believe he's good, even though I see so much bad. I believe that he sent himself for sinners. And when I find myself in the place where I'm reminded, oh, I'm a sinner, I'm reminded that he came for me. So repentance isn't this type of cosmic abuse that he pushes on us, but it's this invitation to another way to live. I have to change my mind about what I believe about sin. I am the chief of sinners. I don't just occasionally slip up. The sin sin that seeks to wreak havoc in my life is a tool of the enemy to keep me forever separated from God and trying to manage my life on my own. I have to see that way if I'm gonna run to Jesus in repentance. And all of this is oh so difficult to believe at its face value. And this is why repentance is so unique to the Christian worldview. We are the only ones, church, that can afford to show ourselves as we are. We are the only ones that can afford to live found out in this world. Someone says, oh, you're a sinner, and they tell you about what it is, and you say, yeah, I wouldn't put it past me. I could see myself doing the same thing, or maybe I did do that. And we can afford to own it, to take personal ownership of sin, because Jesus Christ has ransomed us. He's bought us with his blood. Isn't that good news? It's such good news for us. But it's not just a change of mind, it's also a change of behavior. John the baptizer will go on and say this in Matthew chapter three, after he tells them to repent. When he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, this baptism of repentance, he said to them, you brood of vipers. What a welcome, right? You, you family of poisonous snakes. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Who warned you that you should repent, you religious guys who have it all together? And then he goes on to twist the knife. He says, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. He didn't pull any punches here. He calls out these religious leaders that have come out to identify with the prophet John and the new era of the kingdom of heaven, yet they have no plans of changing their behavior, changing their direction. I, uh, <clears throat> I had this vehicle one time that, um, that <laughs> the label on the, sh- the sh- it was a column shift, the label on the shifter was off, okay? So like, I-, I can't remember exactly, but let's just say you wanted to go in reverse, you actually had to go to like third gear or something, all right? It's crazy, all right? And so you can imagine that you kind of had to be aware of what you were doing when you got in the car. Well, I had let my friend uh, borrow the car one time, and, uh, and I, I forgot to tell him about the shifter. <laughs> and so he gets in the car and he, and he, 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 shifts it, he shifts it into drive, right? And all of a sudden, and he hits on the gas, he's ready to go. And all of a sudden the car starts going backwards. And he, is, he calls me, he is flipping out because he's like, dude, what is wrong with your car? And luckily he didn't wreck or hit somebody, which was good. But I, I think about this idea, this, this thing that, that um, John the Baptist says to, to, to these Pharisees, I think about it in the same way. Because I think this is what the proclamation of repentance looks like without the demonstration of repentance. 
The car says it's in reverse, but it's actually going in forward. The gear indicator tells us it's going to change direction, but it never, ever does. And what do we call that in the church when we say one thing and we do another thing? Hypocrisy, right? Yeah, the world loves to call us hypocrites. And you know what we need to tell them? You're right, we are. And Jesus died for us. But we're trying to get better about our hypocrisy, right? This is why the Sermon on the Mount is so significant for us. What would it look like for you today to think differently about the kingdom of heaven? Not just think differently, but to live differently in the kingdom of heaven. What would repentance look like for you today? Maybe it's this incremental change that you're aware of, that the Holy Spirit's gonna empower, or maybe it's this radical change, this, this, this kind of about face, because I've seen both happen in my life and in the lives of others. I love how Richard Lovelace puts it. He says that repentance is how the kingdom comes in an ordinary way through our lives. Like you wanna see the kingdom of God built? Repent, he says. Here's what he says. The most crucial battle for the kingdom is one every time a human being repents, believes, and submits to the lordship of the Messiah, becoming a new center for the reordering of life on earth as it is in heaven. That'll preach, won't it? Every time you repent, the kingdom of God comes in more full measure to this world and into our own hearts. He says, repentance, metanoia, having a new mind about God, ourselves, and others, is the most dynamic inrush of the kingdom within ordinary history. When we repent, we enter the kingdom, and the kingdom enters history in a little larger measure. Now, in order to experience this kind of kingdom culture, friends, that Jesus has designed each and every one of us for, from that point on, he says, he, he began preaching, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. And everything else that follows it is based on that repentance. There's another really crucial element that coincides that is a close cousin of repentance, the necessity of honesty for us. The necessity of honesty I love, uh, there, there's this, I mentioned this several years ago, but there's this, um, there's this little documentary that one of my favorite authors, a guy named Eugene Peterson, uh, did with, uh, 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 with Bono, right, the U2 guy. Um, and they're talking about the Psalms together, um, or as Bono says, the Psalms. Um, uh, they're talking about this together, and they're, they're talking about, like, Christian, like, music as well. Um, and, and, uh, Bono makes this comment that's so surprising to me. He says, the problem with a lot of, of Christian music, and he didn't get specific, he says, they're, they're so unlike the Psalms because they're not honest enough. They're not honest about who God is, about what's in man, um, and about what sin does. And I love that because it's so true. We are so afraid to be honest with God, and that comes out in our conversations and in our lives. And to illustrate the difference um, and what it looks like to be honest with the Lord with our condition. I wanna, I wanna share this, this story with you that includes a little parable from Luke chapter seven. So if you've got your Bible, flip over to Luke seven. This is a great, great, really powerful story. And Jesus shares kind of this vignette of how two different sinners see themselves in the kingdom of heaven. Um, here's, what, here's what Luke writes. He says, one of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, Jesus. And he, Jesus, went into the Pharisee's house and he reclined at the table. And behold, the woman of the city, she had a reputation, because she was a sinner, it says. When she learned that he, Jesus, was reclining at the table in that Pharisee's house, 
she brought an alabaster flask of ointment, this really valuable ointment. And standing behind it at his feet in this Pharisee's house where Jesus is reclining at the table, she's weeping. She begins to wet his feet with her tears and wipe them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. In other words, this, this really intimate service that she offers to Jesus because of who he is. And she sees herself as someone that Jesus would accept. Now, there's another person in this interaction here, this, this, this dinner here. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said, key words, to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known what sort of woman this is and who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answered him. So the guy's talking to himself. Jesus just calls it out, just answers him, right? And he says this, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he said, say it, teacher. Say it, rabbi. And he shares this story, and this is key for us. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50 denarii. In other words, one guy, one guy owned 10 times more than the other guy. Both of them were in debt, though. And when they could not pay, the moneylender canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more, Jesus asked. Simon answers, well, the one I, I suppose for whom canceled the larger debt. The one who owed 500 denarii. He, 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 would, um, you know, he would be more grateful. He would love the man more who forgave his debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? What an interesting question. Do you even see her? Is she even on your radar of dignity? And because you don't see her, do you even see yourself? Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss. It was appropriate at that time. But from that time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which you're right, they are many, are forgiven. For she loved much. And then the last phrase is the one I really want to hone in on. But he who is forgiven little loves little. What a gripping illustration, isn't it? What a, what a picture in our minds. So my question to you is, how do you see yourself? There's two different self-assessments of people, two different ways to respond to Jesus, and Jesus is calling us to consider this. One of them, the Pharisee looks at himself and he says, hey, I'm not all that bad, especially compared to this woman, right? I'm not all that bad. He, he can't even see himself because he doesn't even see her. The Pharisee, is subjective and not objective. His standard is a moving target. He's created, friends, his own grading scale for what righteousness is. And this is happening in spades in our culture today, isn't it? The line is always moving. My prayers is that it wouldn't move in the church. He thinks, because I'm a self-made man, I can trust myself, my own righteousness, 
They don't know about those secret things I've got going on. They're not out in the open. My reputation's good. But on the other hand, we have this really, really sinful woman. And we don't know why she's sinful, but we just know that she has a reputation because the Pharisee knows about her. And, and the whole town knows her because she has this reputation. Now, it doesn't minimize her past sin, okay? I'm not saying that there are not consequences for our, for our uh, lawless living. There are absolutely consequences. Some of you in this church are bearing the consequences. You're in grace, but you're bearing them in really heavy ways. And as much as I hate that for you, you, you most of you understand that you, that you deserve that, but God is still meeting you in the consequences of that sin. And just kind of as an aside, just as an aside here, you know, how often do we see Jesus shaming sinners that really actually want to repent? Think about the woman at the well. Think about all these stories in the scriptures about um, the calling of Matthew, the tax collector, right? All of these stories of people who have lived really lawless lives, the line constantly moving on the morality. But when they want to repent, Jesus never shames them. He only calls out the ones that don't want to repent. Remember the guy, uh, the guy that, uh, the, the rich young ruler, right? Um, even, even Nicodemus, before he repents, you know, that, that story. Yet, you know, how often do we use others' past to weaponize their future, especially in the church? I can't believe you did that to someone who really wants to repent. And we do this because we don't understand how much we have been forgiven, friends. It's not on the tip of our tongue. It's not on the top of our mind. This woman is inconsolable because she's in the presence of God and she knows that she has no right to be there. But why are we so afraid to be forgiven so much? What is it inside of us? I mean, if it leads to much love and much worship of Jesus, why are we so afraid to be forgiven so much? It's the question that I want us to think about as we land the plane here. I'm gonna share um, a, a chart with you that was shared to me. It was created about 30 years ago um, by a guy named Richard Lovelace. I shared a quote with him and another guy named Paul Miller. And we call it the cross chart around here. And um, it starts with this. And it's a really good illustration of why we are so afraid to be forgiven so much, okay? That's what I really wanna hone in on here. If you think about your physical birth, right? Being born and then your, your uh, think about eternity. Think about a timeline. Um, so this is our lives, and Lord willing, each of us uh, will have an encounter with Jesus that has led to faith and our salvation that will, that will create spiritual birth. The scriptures call it regeneration inside of us, right? Um, and, and at this moment, our new birth begins. Some of us know exactly when that moment was. Others of us are not real sure, but we know we've got it now. We're walking in the light we are, we are no longer, uh, uh, we, because we are hidden in Christ, we are no longer hidden in our past, like that sinful woman. We're no longer hidden in our work. We're no longer hidden in sports. We're no longer hidden in anything else, but we are hidden in Christ. And it sets us on this tra trajectory that we'll call life in Christ. And what we begin to realize in our new life in Christ is that the Holy Spirit is taking the scales off of our eyes in two ways. So in the first ways, we, we start to see that God is more holy than we bargained for. We, we start to see more and more of who God is, and we start to see more and more of his high standard, like 
Like, if Jesus comes in the Sermon on the Mount and he's kind of giving the kingdom manifesto and he's basically, he's showing how his life fulfills the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments get harder to obey in the New Testament because Jesus applies them to the heart. He leaves no question in mind for God's standard of holiness that he is calling each and every one of us to. You must be perfect as he is perfect. That's the command. It seems hopeless, doesn't it? When we think about it, because we feel so far away. I mean, Jesus applies the scripture. He says if in the, in, the, uh, um, in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, Jesus says, if you're angry, uh, it's like you've committed murder. If you've looked lustfully with lustful intent at someone, it's like you've committed adultery. And what happens here is we begin to feel this gap in our lives. The gap of what is required and then the gap of what we measure up to. And there's a gap there. But on the bottom line, we see not only God's holiness and our sinfulness. This is why I say a lot of times when someone becomes a new believer, um, you know, buckle up because it's gonna feel like you're getting a lot worse. And what, what the truth is, is we're just getting more honest, right? We're getting more honest about who God is and more honest about who we are. And so we, we, we see this gap of our, our sinfulness, this, this other dynamic, this downward trajectory. And it's, you know, it's, it's almost like when we become Christians, we get this huge uh, shot of spiritual anesthesia, right? I don't know if any of you have been on anesthesia before with the dentist or whatever, um, but it, it wears off kind of incremen- uh, incrementally, uh, and then you really feel the pain at the end, right? I'm not talking about the crazy things you've done on anesthesia. That'll be a different uh, conversation. I tried to jump out of the car when I was getting my wisdom teeth taken out, but anyway. Um, so we start to see, we start to see ourselves as we really are. And we get to this point where like Romans 7, Paul, like, like who, like, I, like the things I want to do, I don't do. The things I do, I don't want to do. And, and then Paul just says, he kind of throws his hands up in the air. Who will deliver me from this body of sin, Lord? Like you've saved me, but why am I such a sinner? And if you and I are honest, we feel that way. I feel that way week in, week out. And, uh, and so the question is, how do we close the gap? I think, I think there are two options. We either shrink the cross or we see the cross expanding. And there's two kind of ways to shrink the cross that I think about. So, like, if, 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 if Jesus, uh, if Jesus is, is given his life for an expanding cross that covers all of our past, present, and future sin, he redeems us from it all. We want that expanding cross to describe our life. But the shrinking cross is, is our own way of closing the gap in our Christian walk. The first one is this, is pretending. So it's, it's when we close that gap by ourselves in our flesh, we say, we say things like this, hey, it was only once, it'll never happen again, God. You've never said that before, have you? It'll never happen again. I promise I'll change. And so what do we do? We're like tempted to, to cook the books, right? I mean, we're, we're tempted to start to be dishonest about who we are. And, and that sends us on this trajectory of dishonesty uh, where we have to cover up every single lie, constantly covering up our steps until one day God in his grace fully exposes us and it is overwhelming we start to pretend. Or on the other hand, we perform. I had a guy tell me this week that he doesn't struggle with sin anymore because he repented once and for all. You know, I I literally laughed at him. I was like, okay, keep telling yourself that. I'll be here whenever you realize that that's a lie. And I, and I, I, I say it in a trite way, but I mean, John writes this, right? He says, if anyone says he didn't have sin in his life, like he's a liar, like don't believe him. 
So what are we doing when, we, when, we, when, we tempt, when we're tempted to believe that, like this fellow that I talked to this week? We're trying to lower the standard of God's law, right? We're trying to say, he's not really that holy. Therefore, let me drop God's law down to what I can attain. And so there's this, we're kind of moving. Let me give you a, an example. Sometimes when I want to feel good about myself and I'm playing basketball with the kids, I go out and I'll drop it down to seven foot, Okay. And I'll go out and I'll just dunk all over them. And, uh, and, and uh, it's great. It's great. But it'd be like, it, it, it would be like, it'd be like me thinking that because I can dunk on a seven-foot goal that I can dunk in the, on an NBA, like 10-foot, right? It'd be, it'd be the, kind of the same thing, like dunking on a seven-foot goal. And you think that you're playing in the NBA. We're called to be holy. And yes, we are being made holy. But the longer that you follow Jesus, the more holy you realize he is. And friends, that is nothing to be afraid of. We all do it in our own ways. But what if the cross of Jesus could cover the gap for us? What if that was the journey that God has us on? What if we could hold both of these things that terrify us, the perfect standard of God and our awareness of sinfulness? And what if the blood could cover it all? What if that was our story? Our view of the cross would have to expand. Who Jesus is, what he accomplished for us, and who we are, what he accomplished what he accomplished in us. I, my prayer for us is that we would believe that the gospel is this good, friends. That we wouldn't be afraid to be sucker punched in the mouth by the Sermon on the Mount as we see that we are really that bad, but God is really that good and that we would cling to the grace of God and encourage one another as long as it's called today in that journey of seeking who Jesus is, even though we are sinful, seeing his life come alive inside of us. And so this summer, I want you to think about what I've shared with you today as we truck through the Sermon on the Mount together, that it all starts with repentance and you can't repent unless you're honest. Let's pray together. Hey, Pastor Ryan here. We're so glad that you've tuned in with us and watched one of our online sermons. Our vision as a church is to live as the family of God together proclaiming and demonstrating the gospel of grace to one another in our city. If you don't have a church home or you're looking for a church, we'd invite you to attend one of our in-person worship gatherings so you can experience all that God has for us as a community of believers on mission.